Well, I invite you to turn in your uh, Bibles to Psalm chapter 6. Psalm chapter 6. I want to develop a little bit of why this psalm is in this place and position. Uh, we are going to go back to our beds. Uh, we Two psalms ago, we talked about preparing ourselves for good night's sleep and the prayer and the recognition of truth that should be a standard for us because we are walking in righteousness and we are walking in a relationship with God that our standard, that is our normal um, evening preparation, uh, is a matter of worship and recognition that uh, if that that God is the one that will give us rest, that we are ultimately looking forward to rest in his presence, and, and that what interrupts that is our sin. And we talked about that, and we looked at the sleeplessness the, that is uh, the norm for the unbeliever, for the man who plots in his bed to do evil. We then look last week at what is the normal waking up, that we will lift up our voices to God, that we'll sing his praises, that we'll rejoice in him, and we again reflected on the alternative of the wicked people who are really under God's wrath. And we are going to then see that uh, God is not pleased in them, but, God, but we should be desiring to have God pleased with us in our activities throughout the day. That should be the norm. That is, that in, in general circumstances of life, uh, without anything extraordinary, that I should be having a restful night because I have reflected upon the wonder of God's righteousness that he has imputed to me, uh, and then I should wake up in the morning committed that this day I will serve my king, I will worship my God, I will walk with my Lord. And that those three relationships of the one God uh, should be evident in my attitude towards every day. That this day, uh, I want to worship my God. I want to serve my King. I want to walk with my Lord. Those are the three relationships are with the same God, the same person. Uh, and again, the intimacy there. And so we have that, that should be our norm. We come into a passage today that now takes us away from that norm. When that norm is interrupted, uh, when we are facing some catastrophic events in our life. Uh, now, this psalm, interestingly enough, in a lot of church litur liturgy, is used during this time of year, during Lent. Uh, this whole idea of being a confessional psalm. Uh, when you read through this, though, we will be reading through it here shortly, I want to challenge you to find one sin that's confessed, because I can't find any. If you can find one, please let me know. There is no confession of sin. I don't know why this is in the confessional category of Psalms, um, but yet many, many place it there, and it is the one of the very first passages used by not only Catholic Church, but the Orthodox uh, in terms of during Lent. And it makes no sense, and we're going to talk about why here shortly. But they do identify it as that. It is much better identified as a lament psalm, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit and introducing that today, uh, not extensively, because 
uh, I don't know if this is the model lament psalm, or maybe it, may, maybe it would be a good model lament psalm. Um, but we have uh, some other examples that are more clear later on. We're going to be spending more time there. But as we read through this, I want to just challenge you that this is dealing with, well, what happens when tragedy occurs in my life? What happens when the catastrophic interrupts my normal? Uh, and we have some choices, and the psalmist here is going to lead us into uh, a direction that should be the case for us to pour out our hearts. These psalms are often very emotive. That is, they, they come from a lot of... Uh, of, of angst, of, of, uh, of fear sometimes, of uh, agony on occasions, uh, and that is, should be allowed. That, that needs to be identified and worked through. And too often we try to take more of a stoic approach to Christianity, that somehow our feelings are interrupted with that, and certainly we don't base our faith on our feelings. I uh, remember the little train we grew up with, you guys remember the little train? You guys remember the little choo-choo train of Christianity? Facts are the engine, faith is the fuel car, and feelings are the caboose. Right? You, you never saw that illustration? you got to be kidding. Oh, I should have brought a little card for you and put it up on the board. Um, fact, faith, feeling, that that is the, 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 the train of the Christian life, that our that our faith is driven or is pulled by facts, the information of the gospel, who God is, what he has done for us. Our faith is that which fuels that and makes it productive in our life. And feelings, well, they're the caboose. They could be there or not be there. The train will keep running without the caboose, won't it? On facts of what God's done and on the faith that we have in that, whether I feel that or not, um, isn't of necessity. But that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy that and recognize that these feelings are very real and they are certainly represented in this psalm. Whereas the previous five psalms, we have really focused in on the facts of what Christ has done and the, and the disparity, the contrast between those who follow after him in righteousness and those who reject him and rebel against him in their wickedness. And so we, we have referenced feelings that there, and, and more than feelings, because despair really isn't just a feeling. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, despair is a, is a mindset that is facing the facts that I have no hope, hopelessness. Um, and we've talked about rejoicing as being that which uh, should characterize a Christian life. Again, it is not emotionless, it is not feeling less, but it is not feeling centered. That joy is not uh, based upon my circumstances, but neither is it based upon my feelings. Well, I feel joyful today or I don't feel joyful. Um, rather, an attitude of joyfulness that reflects upon the goodness of God that has been extended towards us uh, should impact all of our feelings, uh, that some that will might correlate with it better than others, um, but yet it should uh, not be dependent upon or derived from feelings. So we come to Psalm 6 and we're going to read it together. And uh, please follow along. And uh, again, you'll notice that there is no sin being confessed. To the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. 
O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you in the grave who will give you thanks. I am weary with my groaning. All night I have made my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. We come to this passage and we see the anguish uh, in the uh, description of this the psalmist in terms of his own burden that he is enduring. Uh, and certainly we can maybe turn to some of these descriptive phrases and say, well, this is a man in the throes of guilt, in the throes of repentance, the throes of confession. But again, uh, if that is the, the purpose, the, the focal point, you would think that at some point there would be a sin confessed. But we don't really have that recorded here. And so if you want to put, keep this in the confessional category, then you're going to have to keep it as a general term uh, without any specific sin conceived. Certainly, uh, this psalm was likely placed in the confessional category uh, because of a ideology that states that sin's origin, or I'm not, sin's uh, effect upon you is to bring illness, that that is one of the things. That in essence, that if I have physical malady, that its origin is going to be tied to some sin in my life. And that we know from God's Word is not always the case. We know that it is not always derived from sin. In fact, sometimes God brings injury and even illness upon you for very different reasons that isn't tied to trying to um, chastise you for sin. Does God use these to chastise you for sin? Occasionally, certainly. And certainly when we are confronted with this level of misery, of physical misery and, and misery in our soul, and we're going to talk about what that entails in a little bit, certainly one of the first things we should do is consider, well, is this God's chastening me as a father does his son? Is this God's discipline on me for my disregard for his commandments or for sin that I have committed that I know does not please him? And certainly that is where you should start to begin there. Uh, but if that's all we have and that's all we attribute any physical or, or uh soulish malady, uh, and we only want to attribute it to sin in our life, we do the same error as three of Job's friends who said, you certainly must have sinned for all this to happen to you. And they were all condemned by God for that very position. 
and said, you better go take your sacrifice, let Job be your priest, or I'll break out against you. You go because what you've said is error. And so if we approach a psalm like this as talking about significant things that's going on in this person's life, and we only attribute those significant things to sin, we commit the same error. And God calls us to repent of that, that there has to be a covering for that error. That if we think this is just a confessional psalm, that we only use that when there's sin, because sin is the only cause of either soulish or, or experiential or physical malady, um, we do error. You would have to ask the question, what was Paul's sin that caused, that he asked that thorn in the flesh to be removed multiple times? God says, no, I'm not going to remove that. Well, was that caused by sin? If the thorn in the flesh was a result of sin, then all you had to do is confess the sin, right? I mean, that worked for Hezekiah, and then God gives him more years. He could just remove that. God says, no, I have a purpose for that. It isn't tied to any sin. That purpose is in your life. You have been given such extraordinary revelation, such extensive ministry, that it's very easy for you to get puffed up. And so I want you to know that you have to be dependent upon my grace. And I'm going to remind you of that every day by giving you this thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. Most of us think that for Paul was his eyesight, that he wanted to be restored. But uh, if that were the case, that was probably from him being stoned, which again, was that sin derived? No. And so when we come to this psalm, uh, we want to come to it with a very different approach. And the approach is from the approach of a lament psalm rather than a confessional psalm. Um, just because he references God's anger and God's displeasure and asking for mercy and healing and deliverance uh, does not necessitate that we're dealing with sin. But we are certainly dealing with <laughs> the broader category of the effect of sin on us. That is the general thing, that there is going to be death. Why is there death? Well, because there is sin, capital S, uh, that is in the world. And so we know that the wages of sin is death. And so we all carry that. Even though we have been delivered by the blood of Jesus Christ, we recognize that our physical bodies are still going to carry the consequences of Adam's sin. And so certainly there is the concept behind that, whether that it's personal sin, corporate sin, or racial sin. And by racial sin, I don't mean you care about what color your eyes are or hair or skin. I'm talking about the human race. Okay, we are one race, by the way. Bible doesn't use the only way the word race is used in the Bible to refer to humans. Uh, for everything else, other designation or division among men, they use tribe, tongue, language. What tribe, tongue, and language are you? Those are the divisions of men. Um, the Bible doesn't use the word race, it refers it to the human race. And so, our racial sin is our humanness that there is, we derive that from our fathers, ultimately from Adam. And so some of these things are attributed to that. And we recognize that sin has had an impact upon this world, and that's why God at one point will not only 
take us to his presence, but will destroy this world and create a new heaven and new earth without the ravages of sin upon it. And so we look forward to that. But until that day, we still deal with the ravages of sin, don't we? In our experience, we still deal with getting old and joints creaking and it takes longer to get up and you feel everything worse and your recovery time gets longer and longer until pretty soon that's all you're doing is recovering because you, you, every time you exert yourself the slightest bit. And so we all feel those ravages of, of sin as a general principle without necessarily being my personal sin. We also all deal with the effects of the sinfulness of others. That is, we live in a society of sinners. And we are sometimes swept up into the ravages uh, that they affect, either intentionally, and that's what's going to be talked about at the end of this psalm, that there are the enemies of God's people that will sin against us. Uh, and then there are the those unintentional or, or generalized, they might be intentional, but general, they're not specifically directed to you, but they are generally, because you are part of a population that is targeted, um, uh, that you're going to have to deal with. And so um, the population of the earth has been targeted in the last four years or so, right? Three years. Uh, and, and many Christians were affected by that. Was that mean that all those Christians were sinning uh, that needed to repent and, and, and confess? Um, no, it was the effect of God's creatures and creation and people being attacked by a malevolent group or individual or force. And so these are the conditions that we come into. And, and given this these all these various mechanisms that we can come to, we can recognize that this psalm uh, is effective regardless of origin of the maladies that we confront. And then there's, of course, another category that is completely disassociated from sin and sinfulness, uh, capital S or lowercase s, individual, corporate, or broadly uh, of racial, and we come to that, and that is that God sometimes will bring these as a measure of test. And that was the opportunity that Job had, that now you can have an opportunity to demonstrate and to shut Satan's mouth, that's hard to say, shut Satan's mouth um, by praising God when the world would curse God. And so here we are with a heavenly audience of the earthly stage and we have the the rebellious one the evil one and the righteous one uh saying well what about job he's serving me oh well that's only because you pay him so well let's take away that that salary and see if he'll still serve you okay let's find out and god sets the parameters and lets satan have his go and certainly this was confusing to job because job wasn't privy to that, to what was going on in those heavenly realm. Um, and, but uh, ultimately, God not only restores Job, but more importantly, helps Job understand to 
break through the confusion, understand the nature of suffering sometimes is to bring us into a right relationship with God. And so when we, and, and to purify ourselves or to simply glorify God. And maybe we do that better through suffering than we do through wealth and enjoyment. And so we come to this psalm and we anticipate something, and that is that when things are going poorly in our lives, when things are going really bad, um, who's to blame? And we can find within the psalmist kind of the same confusion. If we, we could, I almost wanted to take us into the book of Job and read two or three chapters of Job saying, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong, but God has turned against me. The confusion of it, uh, because this was the philosophy of men, is that if something goes bad for you, then God must be against you. And we're going to see that confronted here by the psalmist. Things aren't going very well for him. How is he going to respond? How are we going to respond? And so he begins, O oh Lord. He directs his attention to his God. And again, says, do not rebuke me in your anger. Oh, I'm sorry. I have a note here I forgot to touch on. There's one other use of this psalm. Sorry. Now, one other use of the psalm, which is really important because it is completely disassociated from the individual's sin, and that is the messianic use of this psalm. We are going to encounter this multiple places throughout the book of Psalms, um, some more famously than others, where Jesus Christ on the cross even quotes from them, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so uh, we recognize that there is this concept of this abandonment, this turning away as Jesus becomes our sin. So it's not completely disassociated from uh, the sinfulness, the racial sin, sinfulness of mankind um, that's becoming, but certainly was not carried by Jesus, and yet he suffered cruelly at the hands of wicked men. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chase me in your displeasure. Obviously, the psalmist has engaged and is in misery. And this is not the norm. This is the abnormal. The previous two chapters are, here's my pattern, here's my habit in, in, in preparing in the evening, and then, uh, which is the beginning of the day, and then uh, being up in the morning to face the balance of my day. But now, what happens when something horrible happens? comes into our life. Something that we have to process through. And our first turn to the Lord is that, Lord, do not rebuke me. Are you angry with me? Are you chasing me as a father does a son? And as I said, this is where we begin. We begin the process of evaluation right there and say, have I done something or have I failed to do that which you have commanded me that would have your displeasure, have your anger turned against me to have... Uh, you uh, working against me rather than for me. And we can't isolate the event that David is really referring to. There are several occasions we could easily uh, connect this to where it might appear and be evidence. I mean, when the, when the king is hunting you down, 
you can imagine something like this psalm being written. You know, where are you, Lord, and how long is this going to keep going? Uh, and, and why do I, I thought I was your anointed one, and, but I'm being treated like, I'm being hunted down like a dog and being maltreated. We could go from there all the way towards the end of David's life uh, when he was uh, betrayed by his own son Absalom. And there are multiple in, in, places in between that we could select from. But he understands that there are no um, accidents in the Christian life that God uh, is engaged in our living. And so his statement is, has there any, oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. I don't want to have that as the weight that is on me. I don't want to have your displeasure. And so I'm going to come to you, Lord. And, and again, this is an important step in this process that we have in this psalm to process through these extraordinary events in our lives. So we begin there. And this is really not just a statement to God, uh, but the statement is, is granting us evidence that, listen, there are things in our lives that do anger God. There are things he is displeased with. We just saw in the previous psalm the necessity, hey, God doesn't take pleasure in this. So if God isn't pleased to bless me, then maybe I have done something. Oh, Lord, um, whatever it is, please don't abandon me in the midst of this. I'm in the midst of a severe problems. Tragic things are going on in my life. And do not abandon me. I don't want your anger to be multiplied upon me right now. Rather, I need your mercy. Essentially, um, we could come to this with an attitude, don't kick a dog when he's down. Do not rebuke me in anger. Um, there's no evidence here that, the, that he is contemplating his own sinful, a specific sin, because that would be, I will receive your rebuke. Because if the sinner is in a confessional manner, he would say, I deserve your rebuke because of my sin, and I confess it before you. That is not the attitude of the psalmist in verse 1. The psalmist's attitude is certainly with re thinking about sin and saying, well, don't rebuke me in your anger uh, because I really don't see where I have earned that or I've deserved that. Not in a specific manner that so many of us identify as a confessional psalm. And, and David will do that. I mean, he is not afraid to confess his sin before God and to recognize, I need your forgiveness. But that's not how he starts here. He starts here with a with an attitude much like Job starts. As, I, I don't think I've done anything to make you angry or displeased with me. And if that's the case, I, I don't I, don't rebuke me as if you're angry. Don't don't treat me in that manner. Don't chasten me. I haven't. I don't know that I've done. Anything. I'm trying to obey you. I'm trying to be the the man that you want me to be. The king you want me to be. The father. I want to be that. Don't rebuke me. And so there's certainly agony going on. I mean, he talks about it extensively, beginning really in verse 3, uh, but, well, even the end of verse 2. So he desires mercy. So we find his condition. Let's look at that. Very, He lists it right off for us. And his weak, in verse 2, Lord, I am weak. He needs healing, for my bones are troubled. 
And we don't often think of the physicality of coming before God in that condition. Uh, normally, our first thought is not to come before God. It's usually to call the doctor uh, and when things start hurting like that and to seek some medical treatment. Uh, here he is coming before God, saying, I need your healing that I have this ache. My bones are troubled. And that whole idea, and this is going to be a common theme, not only in the psalm, but in Proverbs as well. Uh, that's why we talk about, you know, the joyful heart is good medicine, uh, but uh, a guilt will dry up the bones. And so that association of that text into this text. But the whole concept here is that he is, he is feeling things very deeply and for a long, prolonged enough period of time that it is affecting him physically. He says, I'm weak. I'm in a weakened state. I, I need healing, not rebuke. Uh, if, he want, if he was in sin, that's not the nature of the song. Uh, it is rather saying, I'm in this trouble. My soul, verse 3, is greatly troubled. And we have a very soulish thing stated, but you, O oh Lord, how long? And he doesn't even finish the thought. It's a very abruptness right there at the end of verse 3. And then we finally come again to the, the, the real request. The, the first request is really, um, don't, don't add your rebuke. Don't, don't bring this upon me. I don't need your anger and your wrath. I don't want your displeasure. I don't want your chastening. I'm already under this. Whether it be the effect, and we're going to see the place of the enemies at the end of this psalm, uh, I, I'm feeling this. I'm feeling it in my physical self. I'm feeling it uh, in my uh, soul. I'm feeling it. Uh, and please, Lord, I'm asking you to deliver me. And so he's been requested upon his mercy uh, to be saved in verse 4. But let's jump forward to verse 6 because we're still trying to figure out what his condition is. I am weary with my groaning, he says. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. He has just described a, a very abnormal night, a night of, of desperate circumstances, whether he was physically unwell or uh, dealing with betrayal or other enemies or whatever he was dealing with. Uh, it is affecting his sleep. He... Uh, He's described something that is a, a, a breaking of a fever almost, a night sweat, where he is just uh, tossing and turning. And But this is not because he is unrighteous, not because he's wicked. It's not like what we had two chapters ago, where they don't deserve a good night's sleep. He's saying, I'm having a physical malady that is that I can't sleep, and, I'm, and, and there's anguish. You see the anguish? There's physical anguish and there's soulish anguish in, in him during this time. And some commentators I've read say, oh, this is dealing with, the, the psalmist is dealing with depression. We always want to project modern concepts into Scripture, don't we? Uh, let me tell you how, what God, how God deals with depression. Uh, he slaps you up the side and says, what's wrong with you? He did that to Cain when Cain was downcast in his spirit. 
and said, if you do what's right, you'll be approved. And if not, their sin lies at the door. Um, and another guy named Elijah got all, nobody's left but me. And God says, oh, get up, eat this, take some rest, and we'll get your replacement. You ever think about that? We'll get your replacement. Because you're wrong. You're not the only one left. I have thousands that haven't bent their knee to Baal. And you'll go find one of them and he'll be your replacement, Elijah. Uh, and so God's response and is, is both with Cain. I try to use two examples of Cain, which didn't come to repentance. Elijah, who did, was a follower of God. Uh, to recognize that you can be downcast in your spirit and, and imagine all kinds of things, but it's just selfishness and it needs to be confessed and dealt with. That's not what the psalmist is dealing with here. Uh, what he's describing here is not self-orientation. It's, it's an attack upon his body and his soul uh, that he is trying to rectify and deal with. And it is certainly, he describes his weeping, uh, I can't imagine the uh, nature of it fully, but when he says he drenches my couch with my tears, uh, I make my bed swim, I'm, I'm groaning, um, I am full of grief. This sensitivity that David has to his condition is to pour this all out before God and to describe for God the nature of his suffering. And so we have a physical and a soulish. Now let's talk about the word soul. The word soul literally in Hebrew, the word soul means throat. And so when it says that God breathed in his nostrils and man became a living soul or living being, that word soul literally is the word for throat. Uh, that is the reference of breath. It's also the basis of the word spirit. Man became a living spirit. So when we talk about spirit in the Hebrew, you're really using the word for throat, where your breath enters and exits. So now it makes sense. Oh, he breathed into our nostrils and we have the breath of life, the soul. And that as we live and breathe is that phrase that we sometimes use uh, saying that this is my soul, my life, it force itself. If you want to use that kind of terminology, I prefer not to. Um, but that whole thing of this is who I am, my being that is distinct from my physicality, yet united with it. And that's why the Bible says that, you know, the word of God is quick and powerful, even to dividing asunder of what soul and spirit, bones and marrow. Um, and so, yes, you can divide bone from marrow, but it's hard. You can divide soul and spirit, yes, but it's hard because they're both of the same nature. And so we have the physical malady that he is, but you also have the soulish or that, uh, and I try not to use the word emotions too much um, because uh, those feelings can be easily affected by circumstances. Uh, the soul is much more significant than just the place of your feelings. And we recognize that because we have a term that has been used historically in the church that says, oh, to save my soul. Jesus Christ come to save your soul. Well, that, that spiritual side of man. And so he is sensing this injury, not just because he is physically sick, but he is also in his soul, in his spirit, 
uh, suffering as well. And that combination does not necessitate confessional all the time. But it should be something we pour out to God. That when I am weak in my body, my bones are aching, I am, I am tossing and turning, I have this, this pressure and the stress, this catastrophic stuff happening to me, uh, and, and I don't want you, oh Lord, don't rebuke me. And don't, don't be angry. Uh, boy, it's easy to incite God to anger in those times. Uh, this is, he's not pointing his finger and says, Lord, how'd you happen? But he does ask the question, how long am I going to have to endure it is what I'm going to fill in as the rest of the phrase. Oh, Lord, how long? Whether this is a test from you for me to demonstrate my faith in you, regardless of circumstances, how long? Whether it be the attack of the enemies upon my person and soul, how long? Whether it be this, the circumstances of this world that we all have to live with because this world is so sin-stained, the question is the same, how long? When you are in the depths of agony, the one question you want to know is how long, right? When I'm sick, what, okay, how long will this take for this medicine to heal me? How long? Do I have to endure this? Because if I know you're going to have to, so this is what's nice about certain jobs uh, that are hard to do. And, and I remember in school, just knowing that there is an end to the semester was such a blessing every semester, right? I knew how long it was going to have to suffer through this. This class is going to go on for six more weeks. Okay. I can make it six more weeks. Knowing that there wouldn't be any more of that class after that six weeks. Whew. How long? But if you don't know the end of that, this is a very powerful question. How long? When I am in agony, when I am in misery, when I am struggling, when I am under attack, when I have all of this catastrophic weighing down on me, when it seems that every turn I take, can you, and I just can't help but put Job into this chapter. I turn this way and it seems like you're against me. I turn that way and it's like, ah! I turn this way, I try that, and it's just failure and failure and misery and tragedy everywhere I turn. How long? I don't want to sin in this. I don't want to invoke your anger. I don't want to invoke your displeasure. I, I, I just want your mercy. And the, and the challenge for me is how long? Essentially, he's asking for where's the light at the end of the tunnel? And we all come into these times in our lives where we enter into that where it just seems nothing is going right. That we're being attacked not only... I expect, I expect the world to be the world. And I expect um, you know, sinners to sin. Uh, and, and so when that happens, I'm braced for that. It's backstabbing from the people of God that's most disturbing. And I've had to endure that a few times. Of people that, that should be supporting you, should be encouraging you, that, that discourage and, and want to in, do injury and destroy. Uh, and the question is, how long? How long do I need to tolerate this? How long do I need to endure this? How long until you deliver me? Because that's really the next request. Lord, deliver me from this physical and, and you things that affect your soul will eventually affect your body. And thus, soulish problems are of much more significance than the physical problems. And this is what the Bible talks about. 
And so I want to have a joyful or happy heart. That's good medicine for my bones. Uh, that it's just easier uh, when we have a brighter outlook uh, to endure physical pain. That if I am always looking negative, 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 and if I'm having negative influences in my life, enemies coming up against me, that I'm just constantly under that duress, that I feel everything in my bones and body more. And the world knows this to a degree. We talk about holistic medicine. We're going to try to treat the whole person. And, and so we're going to look at your relationships as well as what kind of stresses are going on in your life and in and, and, and your diet and your, and your sleep patterns and all of that. They're all interrelated. Um, but it's the matters of the soul that have the strongest influence in your life. And they are the matters that we don't give enough attention to. You give more attention to your physical care. You give more attention to your diet. You give more attention to these other things and not sufficient attention to our souls, to our, the spirit that lives within me. If there's one person in God's word that I think was sick all the time. It was a guy named Lot. Because the Bible describes him that he was vexed in his soul every day. They lived in Sodom. Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, maybe you can, because maybe that's how you live. We're not so far from Sodom, are we? That's why you can't immerse yourself in it. The world's wicked. Just, okay, got it. I don't need it to be explained to me, shown to me. I don't need to observe it. I don't need to be have it thrown in my face, but that's what Lot had to deal with every day because he was the only one, even among his family members. And that assault upon our spirit to, to vex it, to bring injury to that, eventually ha has a detrimental effect upon our physical bodies. And the psalmist here is dealing with this. He, and, and many, some textual critics want to say, oh, the last few verses of this were introduced by some other writer later because it's written in a totally different uh, uh, tempo and, and things like that. Um, He's changed gears because he's saying, this is my condition, and now here's the origin of that. I have these enemies. Well, the enemies aren't necessarily physical enemies that are walking up to you with a sword, they're walking up to you with a spear, with a bow, um, even though uh, he is... Oh, maybe that's another one. That's coming up next week, sorry. Uh, them bending the bow. Uh, you're going to kind of physical enemies, but these enemies aren't the physical kind. These are the enemies that vex your soul. What kinds of enemies vex your soul? Gossips, they vex my soul. People that can't ever say anything good and encouraging, they're there to vex your soul. They're there to accuse, accuse, accusers, false accusers particularly, but accusers of all kinds vex your soul. And we're going to be introduced to one of those more next week. And so... We, we have this weight. Uh, uh, betrayal vexes the soul, doesn't it? Those that you trust do untrustworthy things. And maybe it doesn't do any physical injury to you, but you know you've been betrayed. 
And that's why you betray your marriage vows. You have done injury to your mate's soul, to their spirit. And so what do we do with this? Well, I can become self-oriented. I can become self-interested and say, poor me, poor me, poor me. And then I'll become downcast in my spirit. And that will lead to depression. The psalmist isn't going in that direction. The psalmist is leading us in a different approach. I am rather recognizing I have this misery in my life. This is not the norm. And yes, based upon the principles of chapter 4 and 5, it would appear that you're angry and displeasured with me and that I am counted among the world instead of among your people. It would appear that way. And so I'm going to lay out all of this, but I'm going to ask Lord one question. How long? And then please deliver me. Let there be a light at the end of this tunnel of this misery I'm engaged in and, and that I might serve you. And that's the essence of verse 5. If you think that this does, can't lead to death, um, yes, when your soul is crushed um, and its effect on your body can be so significant that it can even lead to death. And that's what the psalmist was at. This is not some, you know, I got a flat tire today, bummer. You know, that's not what this is about. This is about some significant assault on the soul of this man, on his spirit. And I can imagine those times. I can think about how what it was like uh, I, I can't fully appreciate it, but I can consider it out of God's Word, you know, that when David loses his very best friend, Jonathan. Because it wasn't just the loss of Jonathan, it was the loss of his king as well that day. It was, it was the, the humiliation of Israel to their enemies. It was so many things. And, and, and what that does to David, and you might say, oh, and then he's rejected by most of Israel, it's only Judah that wants to make him king. Oh, there's all kinds of circumstances going on to sort out. Can I sort those out? Well, David can't, but God can. Can we sort out all of those assaults on our soul that circumvent us, that surround us? And, and not always, nor should we really even try. And nor should we just become this, oh, poor me, because that's going to lead into a, that downcast spirit. Poor me. The psalmist is saying, poor me. He's saying, this is my condition. This is where I'm hurting. This is my pain. This is what I'm, I'm, this is how it's manifesting itself in my life. I just can't stop weeping. Not because I have no reason, not because I'm feeling sorry for myself, but because of the pressure that is being brought to bear upon me by my enemies who aren't physically assaulting me, but they are assaulting my soul. And that, brethren, is not always tied to personal sin. And that's why I don't think this psalm has any place in our confessional area. It really has a much stronger place in enduring in the lament psalms of dealing with enemies. It's just simply this enemy is sitting against us without physically injuring us. And so there's grief. There are enemies. There are tears. There's groaning. There's troubledness. There's weakness. 
There's physical malady. Again, not necessarily injury because they haven't done violence, but when my soul is troubled and there doesn't seem to be a relief, there doesn't seem to be a way out, there just doesn't seem, I can't see the end of the tunnel. It just seems dark. I don't see a way out. And the question is, how long? And then, Lord, I need you to deliver me. Because the last thing in those conditions is for me to heap God's wrath, God's anger, God's displeasure upon me when I'm, in, when I'm already the target of so much oppression from around me. Or perhaps from even within me. And so we see that this is the abnormal condition of man when we come under duress from the world and from the circumstances of life that perhaps God has allowed simply to bring us into a more intimate relationship with Him, to bring Himself glory by, his, by our endurance. Is the process painful? Yes, it is. It's very obviously painful to the psalmist. And so the question is, still comes on our list, how long, how long is this going to keep going? How long will I be the butt of this assault on my character, on my soul, by these who were once my friends who are now my enemies? though I have done them no injury. And so we are seeing evident that he is uh, facing even death itself. But he wants to serve the Lord. And this is the power, verse 5, is that I can't serve you if I'm dead. If I die of this, who will be glorified? If I die in this condition... Um, of, of agony and of misery, if I die in this condition, how will your name be glorified? It's not that the psalmist doesn't think there's life after death and there's a place in heaven to serve God. Uh, so many commentators want to speak to that. And that's not what he's referencing at all, really. He's saying, how can I serve your glory if I'm dead? And I think, again, we have to go back to Job for the illustration of this. God says you can do anything to Job but take his life. So he brings misery on Job's body, boils all over the place. In addition to all the grief, all the sorrow, all the loss that he has, has endured, um, he has this on his body as well. And then what is even worse, I'm going to say it's worse than the death of his children, the loss of his wealth, than the, the loss of his physical health, was to have three people come and, and antagonize him for who knows how many weeks about, why don't you just admit your sin? Can you imagine that? With multiple speeches each to sit there and just harass you about, you must be the worst sinner on the planet. Why don't you just tell us what it is? And to endure that attack on your soul. But God says, don't, you're not allowed to take his life. Not allowed to do that. Why? Because I'm going to deliver him in the end of this. After he's been taught and trained, and the psalmist recognized that, and his statement is, how can I 
bring a right remembrance or bring, or how can death bring is in death there's no remembrance so basically how can your memory be served by my death in this situation how can my death bring that if i go to the grave um how can you be thanked on earth for your deliverance now can i walk around and say oh i wish i were dead this is so bad well job said that would that i'd never been born right isn't that what he said but you see the psalmist has an expectation he says i want to serve you how can i serve you if i'm dead I want to serve your glory here, that you are the God that delivers, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Oh, were there valleys of the shadows of death in David's life? I think he wrote that psalm. We're going to get to it eventually. He says, I'm in one of those. But there's an outlet to this place, and that, and that outlet I want to serve you. And so God needs to sustain and deliver, and so I, 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 don't, I can't let this take me to the grave. No, I'm, I need to overcome it for your glory in my life. Does that mean I'm not going to ever experience death? No, but let it be a death that glorifies you and not in the midst of the throes of, of this soulish agony. I love hearing the stories of when some saints of old pass and they have smiles on their faces and they say things like, oh, that's nice. Even the testimony prior to their death, uh, even my father-in-law, oh, I'm, I'm ready to see Jesus. Let's get this done. Unplug that thing. I'm ready. I'm ready to go home. And, and will death take that body? Yes, but it is very evident that this person is trusting the Lord. Even a violent death as a martyr is one that glorifies God because that is the ultimate service. But in this condition, the psalmist says, this doesn't bring glory to your name. This is not the way your name should be remembered. And so I'm praying for your deliverance so that I can serve you following your deliverance. And then we come to the last half of the psalm, last half, last two verses, and again we find this condition repeated depart from me all you workers of iniquity why you attackers of my soul go away because god's heard my prayer and he says this in repeated ways god has heard the voice of my weeping lord has heard my supplication and received my prayers and and i'm going to go from being the troubled one to you be the troubled one and ultimately this is the resolution is that you can pour out in the times of misery, your heart to God, he does hear you. He does see your weeping. He does respond. He is near at hand. And so while you have your normal patterns of, of coming to the Lord before you go to bed to have a good night's rest, when you have an interruption of that normal pattern by tragic events and, and, and soulish attacks, that we can still cry out to God and we will weep before him. He will be attentive to the, our needs he will hear our prayers. He'll respond to them. And it is time for us to get up in the morning and say, be gone, enemies. Not that you are saying that there's not going to be any more attack. It's that no longer are you doing injury to my soul because God 
has heard my weeping. He has heard my prayers. He has responded to me. He has accepted my prayer. And so what should be happening is that instead of the believer being troubled, the enemy should be ashamed. And the concept here is that they will be immediately put to shame, not just eventually. The, the psalmist here says they were basically turning them back and say, you know what, that attack that they put upon me really is their shame, not mine. It is injury to themselves and is no longer going to be injury to me because I trust in the Lord. Has there been weeping? Has there been pain? Has there been misery? Yes, but there is not discouragement. Because God hears our prayer. The reason that you enter into discouragement is because you don't lay these things out before the Lord because we say, poor me, or we blame God. How dare you let this happen to me? That is not what the psalmist here is saying. You say, don't add to what they're putting on me right now. Right now, I need your mercy. I need your deliverance. I want to serve you, Lord. And then he turns to his enemy and says, depart from me, you attackers of my soul. God's heard my prayer, and God will put you in your place. You are the ones who should be under duress. You are the ones who should be ashamed. You are the ones... God will deal with you. I don't even have to get back at them. I don't have to get even. I don't have to do anything. God has heard my prayer. And we're going to see somewhere along in here uh, <laughs> in our psalm study uh, that joy comes in the morning, that there is that relief of recognizing, you know what? Compared to what God has done for me, these people can do nothing against me. Saints throughout time have been assaulted, not just physically, but worn out, sometimes by some who should be their own. The apostles had to deal with false teachers coming into their churches and causing dissension and disruption, and we should not expect anything different today. If my expectation is, listen, my soul is going to endure some dark times, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to weep. It hurts. And it's okay to weep. Stoicism is not the correct Christian response. But rather that we pour out those pains, those, those hurts, those uh, things that would cause us to weep, and we pour them out before the Lord, those harsh words, those harsh attitudes, those maltreatments by men, and we pour that out before the Lord and by the circumstances of the world and of, of the general sinful state of the condition of creation today, we pour it out before the Lord and we just say, get away from me, you attackers of the soul. For I have a rock. I have a fortress. I have a hidden place with my Lord. You're the ones that should be ashamed. I have an expectation of serving God in the morning. And so it is not death that will alleviate the darkness of this attack. It is an audience with my Lord that alleviates it. Lord, I trust in you, and though all men turn against me, I will 
still serve you. And again, we find that attitude in Job. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. He is my God. So when we have the unusual, the catastrophic, the duress, this is the attitude. We still come before God. Is there groaning, weeping, tears, agony, pain? Yes. But we come before God. Don't add sin to it by blaming God, by cursing God. And the psalmist is careful to do that. I don't want to anger you. I don't want to displease you. I want your mercy. And the knowledge that God hears such prayers should drive the enemies to shame and turn their trouble back upon them. Not just in that day, one day, but in this day. So we cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And this is why the Bible tells us that we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice knowing that each one of us will have those dark times when we come under assault from multiple um, areas simultaneously that can drive us into some deep places of agony. And we ought to be prepared to weep with them, knowing that God weeps with us when we weep. That He hears us. And he receives us. Let's pray. Lord God, our prayers that you might continue to work in our lives. We thank you for the promises of your word and for the expression that we see here. Lord, we don't know what this week entails for us and perhaps there are some here listening that feel in this dark place even now. Lord, we pray that you might reveal that these things are all temporary, that they will not last, though they seem like there there was no light, there's no end to them. Lord, we pray for your deliverance. You will hear, respond to the weeping, to the supplication of your servants that we might serve you, not just that we might be comfortable for our own selves, Lord, our minds off of ourselves that we might serve you and your people your kingdom with the joy that you intend for us Lord we thank you for your nearness in times of trouble and we confess before you that we too little seek you we often want to curse you or blame you. We too little seek you in those times. Lord, we pray that we might be better at following after you and, and your spirit might continue to strive with our spirit that we might serve you faithfully all our days. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.